Hello, and welcome back to the Caliphs, the rise and fall of Arab power. My name is Zayd Wahab, and today we're going to depart from our narrative to discuss Islam's main heterodox branch. Shiism has already come up with us before, but this is the first time we'll give the subject our undivided attention. Our goal will be to understand how the community split into various groups, with a special emphasis on the two offshoots which had a direct impact on the Caliphate during the period we are interested in the most, the Abbasid Collapse. Episode 81 Splintering of the Shia You probably know by now that I find religious subjects like these a little thorny. I spent some time trying to come up with a suitable disclaimer to open with, and it turned out to be trickier than I thought. Many of the disagreements between the sects are based on divergent interpretations of what took place in the past. Although we will maintain a historical perspective, our purpose should never be misconstrued as an attempt to appraise who got the facts right. We have no dog in this fight. This just happens to be a necessary part of our journey, because it's about to have an impact on the Caliphate. To be honest, I'm not really worried about accusations of outright bias, though. My main concern is about the impression I'm giving by highlighting the Sunnah Shia divide. In many perspectives, the differences between the Sunnah and Shia are minimal. I myself didn't learn about schisms within the faith until I was a teenager, and for years I was scandalized by the idea that there were Muslims with disparate beliefs. That said, I've met many others who had a very different experience. They recall being keenly aware of their denomination as far back as they can remember, and they often had half-formed grasps of what it is that distinguished them from other Muslims. I guess what I'm trying to say is that there's no simple way of telling you how important this split is, if at all. For some, it is nothing more than a historical curiosity, and for others it is an undeniable fact of life. My parents belong to different sects, and they joke about how they had to incentivize the sheikh with an extra donation so he'd officiate their marriage. They are both deeply religious, and I don't think either one of them would have married outside the faith. But clearly, they were raised to not see the sectarian divide as an issue. Most Muslims will celebrate this attitude as enlightened, although some might regard it with contempt. Whether or not I think there's a significant difference between the Sunnah and the Shia is neither here nor there. The fact that their histories diverged is not in dispute, and that is our topic for the day. Now, you might hear these Arabic terms and imagine two contiguous camps of believers, but the reality is more complicated than that. Although Islam has lost some of its diversity in the last century, it is still comprised of a wide array of orthodox and heterodox interpretation, 
Many of the latter are types of Shiazim. My final disclaimer is more a piece of advice. Today's geographical and demographic distribution of these sectarian communities has no bearing on the past. It's more than just Iran wasn't always Shiite or Saudi wasn't always Sunni. It's that the very terms Sunni and Shiite didn't mean back then what they mean today. This is one of those rare occasions where the less you know about the topic, the clearer our discussion will be. So let's try and step into it with as few preconceptions about the sectarian divide as possible. We'll start with the terms themselves. Sunnah derives from Sunnat Muhammad, or the path of the Prophet. Shiite is short for Shiite Ali, or Ali's party, in reference to those who supported the right of Ali bin Abi Talib to succeed his cousin the Prophet as the Ummah's leader. Ali has always been the central figure in Shiite ideology. His name was so charged with anti-dynastic connotations that the Umayyads and Abbasids both kept away from it entirely. Al-Muqtafi is actually the first Ali to become caliph since the original, and even a trifling detail like this leads to ridiculous accusations against Al-Mu'tadid that he was secretly Shiite. A good way of charting this history is to go through all the events and personas that shaped Shiazim. Technically, these start during Muhammad's lifetime. After his final pilgrimage back in 632, the Prophet is alleged to have given a speech at a creek named Ghadir Khum. In it, he voiced his support for Ali as his successor. This is in essence the stance that separates the two main branches of Islam. The Shia believed that leadership of the Ummah was exclusive to Muhammad's bloodline. Ali was not only the Prophet's cousin, but also the father of his grandchildren. He was married to Muhammad's daughter Fatima, and they had two sons together, Al-Hasan and Al-Husayn. We described the martyrdom of Al-Husayn in episode 21, and how it led to the second fitna. The massacre of the Hashemites near Karbala is another core event for Shia historiography. Unlike Ghadir Khum, there is nothing contested about the state murder of the Prophet's clan and grandson in 680, and many Muslims marked the day with somber gravity even before Shiaism had developed its religious distinctiveness. Today it is commemorated annually, over 10 days of Ashura, with a pilgrimage that draws some of the largest crowds on earth, over 22 million last year, 10 times higher than the number who can attend Hajj although that has more to do with accessibility. Al-Husayn was survived by a single son. His line became that of religious scholars, all of whom achieved great renown in Mecca. They maintained a strictly apolitical stance to avoid further Umayyad retribution. Other members of the clan struggled to champion their cause, due to the same pressures from the state. Those who tried to rebel against the caliphate are often described as Zaydis, in reference to the leader of a failed rebellion against the Umayyads in 740, Zayd ibn Ali. The Zaydis are the Shia branch most ideologically similar to Sunni Islam, 
and their beliefs don't include any of the ones developed later on. The next important period for the Hashemites were the two decades around the Abbasid Revolution. Of the three main developments during this period, two are about Ja'far al-Sadiq. Ja'far was the great-grandson of al-Husayn, and he succeeded his own father as the imam of his time when he passed away in 732. Titles like clan leader and religious scholar don't really do justice to the line of imams, but they are the best I can think of. Imams were more than just jurists, theologians, or teachers. They were men whose religious opinions were supreme. Ja'far's tenure started slow, but Umayyad collapse in the 40s meant less oversight and more leeway. He used this freedom to articulate a framework which placed religious legitimacy exclusively with Muhammad's bloodline. In a nutshell, it argues that Ali and Al-Husayn were holy because they had inherited a divine spark passed down from the Prophet. This divine gift went from Ali to Al-Hasan, Al-Husayn, then his descendants down to Ja'far himself, who was the current imam of the time. To me, this is the point at which we can begin to find differences between the Shia and the Sunnah that went beyond the political. Many Hashemites did not accept Ja'far's formulation and rallied instead behind Muhammad the pure soul. His revolt in 762 was thwarted by the capable Abbasid Caliph al-Mansur, but in its aftermath his skin spread Hashemite ideology along different edges of the Caliphate. In the peninsula, the South Caspian, and around Morocco. These efforts eventually gave rise to the Zaydi states in Yemen, Daylam and Tabaristan, and the Idrisid dynasty in North Africa. Although Ja'far didn't enjoy his clan's unanimous backing, his impact on Shiism was decisive. His following grew year on year despite unrelenting pressure by al-Mansur's government in Baghdad. But there was a problem when Ja'far passed away in Mecca in 765. Succession. If you're distracted and only half paying attention, this is a good point to perk up. Ja'far had laid out this whole system where the divine touch goes from one man to his son upon his death. And he seems to have already prepared, and perhaps even openly designated, Ismail as his heir. Tragically, the son predeceased the father. Ja'far did not endorse another successor, so when he passed away, there were disagreements among his followers. Leadership of the Hashemite tribe eventually went to a different son of his, Musa al-Kadhim. But Musa was 22 years younger than Ismail, and many followers retained their attachment to the man they saw as Ja'far's original heir. The Shia who followed Ismail's bloodline are known as Ismailis, and also seveners because Ismail was the seventh imam. Ismailis make up the largest minority within the Shia community. Both the Qaramita and the Fatimids were Ismaili, so we're going to circle back to this part of Shiism. But first, 
Let's stay with the Imams so we can finish off the main chunk of the sect. Twelver Shi'ism It gets its name from the fact that its adherents believed in twelve successive Imams of their time. We've already covered the first seven. Let's say a quick word about the fate of the last five to bring us up to speed with our narrative. Pretty much every Imam from Musa and on is alleged to have been assassinated by the Abbasids in various Shia sources. Some of those claims are more dubious than others, but in the mid-9th century, Al-Mutawakkil forced the line to relocate to Samarra. The last couple Imams lived their lives confined to that military city and had to rely on covert messengers to smuggle their teachings and opinions out in secret. The tenth Imam was the first one relocated to the Abbasid capital. The eleventh remained there throughout the anarchy and into the early years of Al-Mu'tamid's reign. That is when we hit the final defining event of Twelver Shi'ism. The eleventh Imam, Hassan al-Askari, was only thirty years old when he passed away. Unlike his predecessors, there was no prominent son whom the masses implicitly understood would become the next Imam. This was most probably the Abbasid goal. They hoped that by secluding their kin in the military capital, the line of Imams would simply come to an end. And they got their wish, but in a monkey's paw kind of way. Since their forced relocation to Samarra, the Imams had begun to rely on deputies to spread their teachings. The most prominent of these told believers that the Imam's son Muhammad was alive and well, but that due to the Abbasid threat on his life, he had to remain completely hidden. The deputy asserted that following divine guidance, the twelfth Imam had climbed down a well in the palace basement and vanished, taken to a higher plane. There's no agreement on how old the twelfth Imam was when his father died in 874, but he was really young, somewhere between an infant and an eight-year-old. If you find the notion of a hidden Imam to be contrived, then let me clarify its Islamic roots as they're about to become relevant. There are narrations about the Prophet Muhammad discussing the end of days. The language used is often vague, and full of reminders about how the unknowable is meant to remain unknown, but they do suggest the arrival of a holy savior. This was the character alluded to by al-Mukhtar during the second fitna, Ali ibn Muhammad, leader of the Zanj rebellion, and pretty much all Shia branches at one point or another. To Twelvers, this savior is the twelfth imam. To Ismailis, it is usually Muhammad, the son of Ismail. The next few decades are called the Minor Occultation in Twelver Shi'ism because the community was led by four successive deputies who intermittently received guidance from the hidden Imam. These men solidified the idea that the hidden Imam was the world's savior and that his reappearance at the end of times will herald the return of divine justice. In the year 940, the final deputy told his followers that a letter from the awaited Imam had informed him that the time of the greater occultation was upon them. 
there would be no more messages from the beyond, and no need for further deputies to receive, interpret, and disseminate the Imam's teachings. Now that we're done with Twelver or mainstream Shi'ism, let's double back and cover Ismaili history. Twelver Shi'ism's inherently apolitical nature meant it didn't actively contribute to the destabilization of the Abbasid Caliphate. The reason we covered it in such detail is because the death of the 11th Imam in 874 had consequences beyond the ones we described within the denomination. While many adherents followed the deputies, others joined different communities or took matters into their own hands. The Ismailis capitalized on the opportunity presented by the termination of the line of Imams. Their da'wah offered the tens of thousands of aggrieved Hashemite supporters a much more active approach to opposing the Abbasid state. As we already mentioned, both the Qaramita and the Fatimids were Ismaili. In fact, the two groups didn't split until 899, so until we get to that juncture, we'll cover their story jointly. Or at least we can try to. Not much is known about the early history of Ismaili Islam, and the mystery is unhelpfully compounded by controversy. Our primary sources are pretty hostile to heterodox movement, and their commentary is not particularly insightful. The Fatimids muddied the waters further after they became the first Ismaili group to achieve success. They established a dynasty, grew their domain, and eventually declared their state to be the true caliphate. From the safety of their new capital of Al-Qahira, better known in English as Cairo, they promulgated the history of their sect from their perspective, making claims that other Muslims reject outright. What I am about to relay is a synthesized version that stitches events together to the best of my understanding. Just know that there are wildly different interpretations out there. I want to begin by noting that the Shia community ruptured literally every time an imam passed away, though most of those groups didn't last very long. As far as I can tell, Ismailism endured long enough to develop into its own tradition because of a quantitative advantage over other offshoots, not a qualitative one. Jafar al-Sadiq had a considerably larger flock than any of his predecessors, and his irresolute succession left lots of room for doubt. Ismaili sources insist that Jafar had taken great pains to prepare and legitimate Ismail as his heir, a charge denied by Twelver Shiites, who believe the next imam was Jafar's much younger son Musa. Some extreme Twelver accounts call Ismail a drunkard who was disowned by the pious Jafar, but we're verging on mudslinging territory and should back away from such reports. Ultimately, followers on either side of the split believed their imam was chosen by God. This squabbling over legitimacy denigrates what is meant to be a religious institution into a political one by highlighting its dynastic aspects. We're not sure what supporters of Ismail did following his or Jafar's death. 
According to Fatimid accounts, Ismail's son Muhammad fled to Khuzestan and went into hiding somewhere between there and Fadis, in order to escape would-be assassins. These were the enigmatic circumstances surrounding the birth of the Ismaili da'wah. Fatimid sources say that the project kicked off in the early 9th century, adopting extreme measures to maintain secrecy. Crucially, one of the steps the descendants of Ismail are said to have taken was adopt fake names to obscure their lineage. We should make special note of this detail. By the 830s, the Dawa's leadership had relocated to the town of Salamiya in Syria, about 30 miles northeast of Homs. The city boasts the world's largest Ismaili population today, but back then, the nascent movement's supporters had to advocate for their cause in secret. It's important to keep in mind that although the Dawah was superficially political in nature, it was calling specifically for Muhammad ibn Ismail to become the Ummah's next leader, a man who had passed away over a generation back and was now considered to be a hidden imam, the awaited Messiah. So essentially, it was asking those it was preaching to for faith, not fealty. The Ismailis managed to achieve critical mass by working behind the scenes long enough to capitalize on successive Abbasid calamities. The end of the line of Imams was just the latest shock the Ismailis used to their advantage. They grew their ranks during the profound social destabilization brought about by the anarchy in Samarra. The failure of the Zanj rebellion meant its remnants in the south of Iraq and their allies in the Arabian desert were ripe for recruitment. Al-Mu'tadid's brutal repression of the Karajite rebellion in Mesopotamia left the tribes and Kurds he'd displaced into Iraq with an axe to grind as well. Syria's repeated switching from Abbasid to Tulunid hands left neither dynasty with firm control over the province, and its nomadic tribes were open to avenues for reasserting their own power. Basically, the Ismailis slowly became the default anti-Abbasid movement. The state couldn't do much about them because there were no descendants of Ismail anywhere to be found, only believers in the promised return of Ismail's son Muhammad. That's the point of a hidden imam or an end-of-times savior. They could not be taken out. Over a decade after the occultation of the 12th Imam, the Ismaili Da'wah gained an energetic new convert by the name of Hamdan ibn Qarmat. Qarmat isn't a recognizably Arabic name. Some accounts allege it is Aramaic, while others say it was Persian. Although our sources can't even agree what language it was from, a couple go even further and tell us that Qarmat means bow-legged or red-eyed. There's a lot of derogatory material to be found because the Qaramita will prove to be a scourge on the Ummah. At this early stage, though, they are only charged with strange heresies and nothing more. Qarmat spread the Ismaili creed in Iraq, 
and by the end of al-Mu'tamid's reign, he had established a base of operations in Kufa. From Qarmat's success, we can infer that there were plenty of Iraqis who were prepared to support a revolutionary movement against the Abbasids, especially one that didn't ask them to risk the caliph's wrath by having them pledge to a living rival. These people were everywhere. Peasants, poor townsfolk, city folk, and of course the Bedouin, who had a long history of raiding settled communities. The term Qaramata was used to disparage, and it was applied to all Ismailis in order to belittle their creed. Qarmat wasn't the only Ismaili superstar. Other preachers achieved similar results in other places. Sa'id al-Jannabi took over Bahrain with the support of nomadic Arab tribes in the region. Originally from Janaba, on the Persian side of the Gulf, this warlord-like figure made the town of Qatif on the eastern shores of Saudi Arabia his capital. There were others as well, but these two are the only important ones, and I don't want to weigh us down with too many names. The point is, by the late 9th century, the Ismaili da'wah had really gained traction thanks to the efforts of men like Qarmat and al-Jannabi. This takes us to 899, a fateful year for this branch of Shi'ism. That year, the head of the movement in Salamiya, Abdullah, who had just taken over leadership of the da'wah following his father's death, issued an earth-shattering proclamation he announced that he was in fact the true descendant of Ismail and that the time had come for his line to step out of the shadows. This was a seismic shift in the movement's political project. By declaring himself the heir of Ismail, Abdullah was effectively attempting a coup against the Abbasids. The Ismailis were no longer waiting for a hidden imam they were now religiously obligated to support him as their savior. Fatimid sources insist that most Ismailis rejoiced at this turn of events, but there's good reason to believe that the majority rejected Abdullah's claims. Qarmat was the most vociferous of those who opposed Abdullah's leadership, and his stance redefined the Qaramita as those Ismailis who believed the Imam was still a hidden figure. So, because they also rejected Abdullah's claims, Al-Jannabi's bunch in Bahrain are also considered Qaramata, despite not having much to do with Qarmat. Within a few years, Abdullah's followers began to refer to themselves as Fatimiyin or Fatimids, a reference to the Prophet's daughter Fatima. It was their way of linking themselves to the Prophet's revered bloodline. So now that we have defined these labels, let's delve into the fast-paced action we described last time. Abdullah came out as the Ismaili Imam in 899, and the split between his supporters and the Qaramata led to a firestorm. Al-Jannabi sacked Basra the next year, and the year after that, the Qaramata in Syria declared their own Ismaili heir and ravaged Tulunid positions across the province. The chaos led al-Muktafi to dispatch armies to deal with the Ismailis in 902. Abdullah and the budding Fatimid movement couldn't handle all this heat, 
and they fled Thelemia that year. They passed through Ramla in Palestine, then went west through Tolunid Egypt, Aghlabid Algeria, and settled between there and Idrisid Morocco. Over the next few decades, the Fatimids will take down all three dynasties and gain a border with the Caliphate. Although the Abbasids will survive the advent of the Fatimids, they had to expend significant resources to do so, and their armies were kept busy by the new Ismaili dynasty in Egypt. The Fatimid story will play out over the rest of our time together. And since it's not really part of our tale, I'll just point out when some of its more consequential successes took place as we progress with our narrative. The Ismailis, which mattered more to the Caliphate, were the Qaramita. So let's end our discussion by covering their fate in more detail. The Abbasid armies had an easy time putting down supporters in and around the settled communities in Iraq. One narration makes it sound like the challenge there was to break their will without killing too many, as these were the same men who had to reap the harvest in coming months. Obviously, these peasants were no threat to the Caliphate's professional armies. The Qaramita in Syria were a different breed. These were Arab Bedouin, particularly the Kelb Confederation, a wide umbrella of related local nomadic tribes. They brought Tolunid authority to its knees in 902, but the Caliphate sent its best men against them in 904. It took Hussein ibn Hamdan only two years to cripple the movement. As an Arab tribal leader himself, he could better anticipate their capabilities in battle and could make alliances with any local opponents against them. The relationships he built during these campaigns will help his clan found a dynasty that enjoyed great legitimacy in Syria down the line. This just leaves the Qaramita of Bahrain, led by Sa'id al-Jannabi. They got away with their sack of Basra in 900 and only grew more brazen with time. It's unclear where they got their penchant for extremism from. Some sources blame Jannabi himself, and he does often come off as a ruffian. Others say that the nomadic Bedouin always had a contempt for the settled communities they bordered, and that with the Zenj rebellion over, they looked for a new excuse to raid the caliphate. These Qaramita are why the group have such a bad reputation. Sure, our sources don't especially like Ismailis, but the Bahrain-based Qaramita are accused of heinous atrocities. In 906, the year Al-Muktafi passed away, they raided Hajj caravans, slaughtering the men and enslaving the women. They will go on to threaten Baghdad and even desecrate the Kaaba in Mecca in the year 930. This bunch was radically anti-everyone else. They fought with the Fatimids just as much as they did the Abbasids, and they terrorized the Ummah from their base in the eastern Arabian desert. With this, I feel we are now better equipped to handle the volatile future which lies ahead of the Abbasid Caliphate. Although the Twelver Shiites remained apolitical, 
the state now had two new sorts of Shia to worry about, on top of the Zaydis they were already dealing with. The Fatimids sought to establish themselves as a rival dynasty in Africa, while the Kharamita were a dangerous confederation of hostile nomadic tribes closer to home. These will be two of the main forces the Ummah's incoming leader will have to fend off. And next time, we'll introduce the boy and his inauspicious ascension. Here on the Caliphs, the rise and fall of Arab power. <laughs>